So we're going to continue our look at the book of James, and we started this before the pandemic, and I find that interesting because not only are Christians being tested right now, but everybody else is as well. The entire earth is under uh, this pressure of the pandemic, and how we respond uh, just as human beings is uh, going to say a lot about uh, the world that we live in. Also, what it says about the church. How's the church going uh, to respond to the pandemic? And so uh, let me read to you, if you'll turn to James uh, chapter 2. We're going to read this passage. I'm going to try to finish it up today. Uh, James chapter 2. And it, and it has to do with faith and works. Perhaps one of the most controversial uh, things in Scripture and certainly in the history of the church. And so let's begin uh, at verse 14. I'll read the rest of the chapter uh, and then uh, do a brief review and, and then go into some other things. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says that he has faith and does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food and one of you says to them, go in peace... Be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body. What good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, faith, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up the son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says... Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way was not also the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. This is the word of the Lord. James is writing an interesting book, and he's, it's a proverbial book. It's not a typical letter like uh, the writings of the Apostle Paul or Peter or John. It's very different. It's unique in the New Testament, like the book of Revelation is unique. It's a one-of-a-kind book uh, that is full of aphorisms and sayings and proverbs that are loosely connected. They're connected, but not tightly with the tight kind of arguments that the Apostle Paul was known for making, but rather more loosely. And so as you read them, you, you're, you're getting his instruction on what it is like to live in this world as a Christian uh, believer. And last time, a couple weeks ago, before uh, Ben helped me out with a, a couple of weeks off, uh, we were talking about God, the existence of God. And if you believe in God, doesn't matter. If you're one of the 98% of human beings on the planet Earth that believe in God, a God, 
gods, he, she, it, them, whatever it is, 98%, perhaps even more, uh, believe in something. It's a very small percentage. Uh, some scholars believe it's less than 2% uh, that are true atheists in the truest sense of the word. Uh, how do you relate to this God? And James is making it very clear, as did his brother Jesus. Jesus' whole ministry kept pounding away at the Pharisees, the religious people. How do you relate to God? So James and Jesus were not talking about being nice, being a good person, following the rules, following the law, keeping the commandments. Jesus and James, and I believe Paul as well, we're talking about something else that is underneath the surface um, of what we see out here as we try to portray ourselves as good or nice or what have you, moral, ethical. You know, there are people in this world that don't believe in Jesus that are better people than you. They're more moral, they're more ethical, they're kinder. In fact, some of the meanest people I've ever met are in church. Now, none of you, but there, there are probably some watching by YouTube. You're mean. <laughs> now, come on. We know that. Religion does not remove that. Even faith in Jesus does not remove that. The Pharisees were scrupulous about their obedience to the law and their ethics and their morality. And yet Jesus challenged them, and I believe that James is just doing the same thing because he's talking to a group of Jews who have stepped into Christianity, and that's his audience. He's not, just trust me, and if you don't want to trust me, keep coming and listening, and I'll explain more. He is not responding to the Apostle Paul's wonderful declaration that salvation is by faith alone, in Christ alone, plus nothing. They were not debating this idea. In fact, they weren't speaking to each other at all. They were speaking to different audiences. Paul's audience was a bunch of uncircumcised Greeks who didn't know uh, anything from anything, and they're figuring out how do, we, how do we make our way into this new religion. James is talking to people that were pharisaical. They were, keep, they were good people, but their mouths did not match their heart their actions, and so he's correcting that. So in this chapter, we talked about this a couple weeks ago very quickly. Let me just give you a quick review. And those of you that like to take notes, uh, you can certainly take notes. If you don't want to, I'll send you these if you want. But here's just a quick, very quick, down and dirty outline of what James is doing. Verse 14, he's saying, what kind of faith will make you right with God. What kind of faith? So you can have faith in anything. You can believe that this tree over here will save you if you just, why would you do that? Why would you fall down and block to a block of wood that you're also cooking your dinner with and also warming yourself? Where's your mind? And idolatry is delusional and it will take you there. So just saying, I have faith. I'm a spiritual person. Uh, I believe in God, whatever God is out there. And God, at least, if you're going to say that, I believe in God, whatever God, and God to me is this, and then they describe what God is to you, what they think He is. 
at least challenge them and say, have the intellectual uh, honesty and integrity when you do that to say that that God is just you. You're just saying, this is the God I made up in my head, what I want them to be, or it, or she, or whatever, and that's God. Well, have the intellectual honesty to say, that's you're a figment of your imagination. You're just saying, here's what I would like God to be. That isn't God. God is not what I want him to be. He is what he is. What I want him to be is my spiritual grandfather in heaven who gives me everything I want, like I do to my grandchildren. If they want something, I will rob, steal, beg, borrow. I'll do anything for them, right? And just give them what they want. But even I don't give them everything they want because if they want to drive my car and then my granddaughter is six years old, I'm not going to let her drive my car. Maybe next year. You get the idea. I mean, God is who he is, whether we like it or not. And just because we don't believe in him doesn't mean he doesn't exist. And just because you believe in something doesn't mean that exists. Faith is not that. And James and Paul and, and much of the ancient writers in the Old Testament were challenging that idea of idolatry, that you can just make God whatever you want it to be. So what kind of faith makes you right with God, whatever it is. And James says, what good is it to say you have faith, but your actions don't comply, they don't line up with that. So he's describing what kind of faith will actually demonstrate true justification, being right with God. It's going to demonstrate itself through trust, he doesn't mention morality per se. He, he mentions the widows and the orphans who are uncared for by the church, and they are a symbol, or he's actually talking about them literally, but he's not limiting it to widows and orphans. He's saying the people that are downtrodden, that are beaten down, that need the gospel, that need Jesus Christ, that need your hands and your heart and your head to enter into their messy lives, Somebody hadn't come in my messy life, I wouldn't be here today, the paragon of virtue uh, that you see standing before you. <laughs> That's funny, folks. I'm not a paragon of virtue. Okay, never mind. Y'all don't know. I, I'm kidding around. All right, so look, if God hadn't gotten in my messy life with somebody, I wouldn't be here, and neither would you. Somebody had to enter your mess to save you. And this is what he's saying. That kind of heart, a heart of trust, obedience, loyalty, and worship to God, love of others, that expresses itself in ways of sacrifice and service is going to cost you to be a Christian. I'm not going to preach to you a health and wealth gospel where God's just going to sprinkle blessings on you all the time. Being a Christian is not easy. It's hard. It's going to cost you. If it doesn't cost you, then it's probably not Christianity. But the cost is worth it. And the cost is, is because we are seeing a greater cost that was paid by our Savior. And our motive, our response to that is loyalty and love and thankfulness. So he says that's what kind of faith, verse 14. In 15 through 18, he describes that faith that is not a saving faith. And he calls it dead so he's going to contrast these two kinds of faith. Dead faith, and then he's going, to con he's going to give us living faith in 20 through 24 with the examples of Abraham and Rahab. So the second part of your outline, if you, if you want to keep 
keep track of this. Dead faith is empty, insubstantial. It's nothing. It's just talk. It has nothing going along with it. If someone with poor clothes lacks food, and you say, go in peace, be warm, be filled, and you don't help, what is that? That's dead. What good is that, he says? Faith by itself. Now remember, he's not talking about salvation here. He's talking about you're already faithful. You're saying you're a believer. Why would you do this? And so he's questioning the motives and the actions, the internal. He's going like Jesus did. Jesus went to the heart. Show me a penny. Should we pay taxes? Show me a penny. Whose picture is this? Oh, that's Caesar. Give him back what belongs to him. But give to God what belongs to him. You see, Jesus was a, a, he was a genius because he knew exactly what questions to ask to get into the heart, to find out the motive. You're griping about taxes, but what about what's really behind that? And there's a plethora of things that's behind that. Uh, to say nothing of greed and stinginess and who knows or I shouldn't have to pay so much. You know what? If, they, if the government wanted, they could take everything you have and throw you out in the street, like they did my wife and her family in Cuba. They were wealthy. They had all kinds of stuff. And when they left that island in 1961, they left with $1,200 and my father-in-law's medical degree, and that's it. They took everything away. So don't live under the illusion that we're okay. We must trust our Savior with every shred of our lives. And that's what he's saying. And he gives, like a good rabbi, an objection. Verse 18, someone might say, you have faith, I have works. And then he comes back and says, no, I'm not going to let you have that dichotomy. I'm not going to let you hold that dichotomy. There's no such thing. In other words, show me your faith. Apart from your works, I'll show you my faith by my works. He's saying, he's saying, look, the kind of faith that is substantial is a faith that is active and dynamic and filled with love and action and trust and out there. And it's not just giving you lip service. And then in verse 19, he, he backs up his objection with, the, the, he, he confronts the objection with, an absurdity. And he says, look, you believe in God. And then some translations actually say, he says in in our translation, it says, I have, you you have, uh, you believe in God, you believe God is one, you do well. That's in our translation. But some translations say, good for you. You believe in God, good for you. It means nothing to say, I believe in God, because demons also believe the Shema, which he quotes here from Deuteronomy chapter 6, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That was the great confessional standard of uh, the Jewish world, the Hebrew world, and our world, by the way. You believe God is one? That doesn't, orthodox, orthodox theology will not save you. Even my professor from seminary, R.C. Sproul, would say that. R.C. said, just believing a doctrine will not save you. You must believe the Christ that the doctrine is describing. You must put your faith in the person of Jesus in order to receive the benefits of the doctrines of Jesus. And 
Get it backwards, and you don't have Christianity. You got something, but it's not Christianity. So, the absurdity of dead faith. And then he gives these two examples, and we're not going to take time to look at them both. I'll just say a few things about them. The first example is Abraham. And I think James was brilliant. He contrasts, he takes two, he could have taken anybody, he had a whole entire Old Testament. He could have picked anybody he wanted. And yet he picks Abraham, the father of the faithful, and a prostitute, Canaanite, who was under the ban, under the harem. She was sentenced to death. Not only was she sentenced to death because she was under the judgment of God, she was a woman. Not only was she a woman, she was a woman of ill repute. Wow. He, I mean, he couldn't find anybody worse than Rahab unless he had come to El Paso and met one of us. Right? See that? Didn't that hurt? Say, no, Rahab, I'm better than Rahab. No, you're not. You don't even know how bad you are. I don't ever want God to pull the, cur- the curtain back all the way on me. I mean, I know, but I, I don't want him to pull it out. He pulls it back a little bit sometimes and says, here, take a peek at this. And then I go, oh, my God. But I don't want him to pull it all the way back. I would lose my mind. I'm saying because of what I know is in there. He never does that. He's gracious and good. When he needs to give us a peek, he does. He knew that Isaac was to be the heir. He believed God before Isaac was born. Chapter 15 of Genesis he, he circumcised his tribe, his people, and his sons, both of them Isaac and Ishmael, in chapter 17. And then God comes along and says, it's time for you to judge your only son, bring him to me, put him to death. And the narrative, as I told you a few weeks ago, is very stark. It doesn't have all this... You know, just go, you know, he stayed up all night. He was, he was sweating bullets. He was crying. His heart was broken. It doesn't say anything. He says he got up, he got Isaac, got the wood, got everything, and off he went. Never a question. And what the author of Genesis 15 is saying is look at obedience, raw, loving, trusting obedience. And the writer of Hebrews comes along and said, that Abraham's faith was proven in the fact that he took Isaac up that mountain. Here's one thing we do know about his internal feelings as Abraham took his son Isaac up that mountain. We, knew, we know one thing for sure, that he was confident that if he killed his son on the mountain, God would raise him from the dead. That's from the lips of the author of the writer of Hebrews. That's one thing we do know about how Abraham felt. I'm going to march up there and, you know, whatever else was going on in Abraham's heart, we don't know. But one thing we do know that he believed God's promise that Isaac was his heir. And in that powerful moment, God spares Isaac and sacrifices a ram with the promise of a lamb to come. Unbelievable. Then you go to Rahab. She knows nothing about God. She had no promises. And here's her testimony. Listen, folks. You know people like they don't know, they don't know anything about God. But look at what she says. I know the Lord. She's telling the spies, you know, they're making a deal. The city's coming down, and the spies are going back to get the, the Israelite army. And she says, before you go, I know, here's her words. Listen to this prostitute, a Canaanite. I know the Lord has given you the land 
The fear of you has fallen on all of us. They were terrified. The inhabitants melt before you. We heard how the Lord dried up the Red Sea. We heard about this miracle over there 40 years ago and how you defeated uh, the two kings, the Amorite kings, Sihon and Og. They were powerful. They got slaughtered. Our hearts have melted. There's no spirit left in us. And listen to this woman who knows absolutely nothing. You've got to love this, folks. I love this. For the Lord, your God. God says, you know, you're justified in my sight. It didn't produce justification. Her faith was just an instrument. It just acted on what she believed. You see. It, and James finishes with this. He just expects you to understand the logic of, of his argument. He says, as the body apart from the spirit is dead... So faith, apart from works, is dead. Now, let me quickly say a couple things. In the Reformation, many of you are familiar, many of you at home, you know the Reformation was a time when the battle between faith alone, salvation alone, Christ alone, sola gratia, sola fide, sola Christo, all of those things were being battled out. And, and of course, Luther was at the forefront of that battle, and Luther did not like the book of James. He called it an epistle of straw because it, it was hard to reconcile when you're in the middle of a battle for your life with the Roman establishment, Roman Catholic establishment and the entire Eastern Orthodox establishment, which I was raised in. When, when you're looking at that gigantic monster, and I, I don't say that in a, in a pejorative way, this huge institutional structure of religion that says you're saved in a, by a combination of faith and grace and works. They never, the Roman Catholic Church, nor the Eastern Orthodox Church, nor even the most robust rabbinic Judaism ever said that you're saved by works alone. Nobody said that. Now, there are religions that say that, but no branch of Christianity has ever said you're saved by works alone. Every branch of Christianity, sadly, including some Protestants, it's always faith, grace, plus. Plus something. They add something. The Reformation comes along and radically the Reformers said, no, it's plus nothing. It's solo Christo. It's only Christ. It's only Scripture. It's only faith. It's only grace, and it's only for the glory of God, not for the glory of people and, 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 and gold and, and, and all of that majesty. No, it's for this. And they had to fight a battle, and so it's understandable that Luther would react. But when you read the later commentators, people like John Calvin, uh, who, is, who is our patron saint, uh, yikes, uh, you know, they started, to, they started to modify that somewhat and say, no, we, we're not saying that, it's, that you're saved by faith alone. We're saying you're saved by a certain kind of faith, a faith that works. And they have all these cool formulas. And maybe next week, if, if I can pull it off before we do, move on in James, I'll, I'll show you some of, the, some of the formulas. They're great, but gosh, we just don't have time. I, I wish we could. But you know what? If you stay around after communion today, be happy to, to share some of that with you. 
So here's what I want to ask you. Here's what I want to close with so that you just think about this when you go back home and when you're talking to your friends, even friends that don't believe in God or are questioning, I don't know what I believe about God. Don't, don't say, well, here's what you should believe. Say, well, tell me, how would you, whatever God is, whatever you're thinking God might be, how are you going to relate to that God? How will you, how will you interact? Or is, or is God just up there and he just kind of threw things into existence and you're done? He's done, he's just watching. Well, that means your life is meaningless, right? And when you die, you just go into the ground and become more of the dirt. But if there's anything beyond that you have to face, what, what is the meaning of all of this? All this beauty, all this wonder, all the science and architecture and, and art and, and wonder and nature and what is this? The heavens declare the glory of God, the Bible says. His handiwork. My goodness. Why do we obey? Is it duty? Listen to me. Is it duty? Is it obligation? We talked about this. Is it debt? If it's raw duty, that may be good for you in the service, you guys that are in the service, or if you're a police officer, or if you're a pastor in a church, and I'm, you know, I want to do my duty, that's all good. There's nothing wrong. It's a great virtue. But if it's raw duty, then duty is the reason you're doing it. Or the institution, your loyalty to the institution. If it's obligation, then you feel like you have a debt to pay, what John Piper called a debtor's ethic. Christianity will not abide a debtor's ethic. Is it a fear? Is it terror? I'm not talking about respectful awe and wonder at God and, wow, you know, you're bigger than me, so I'm going to do what you say. It's not that. It's ter- if it's terror, then you're just scared he's going to bounce you, you know, off the wall or on the concrete or whatever. Is it mercenary? Like we hear in America today, you can't even turn on Christian radio or TV it's mercenary. Give us $100 and God will give you this. You know, obey this. Say these things and you'll get this. Giving to, you know, serving God for stuff, not serving God for God. Is it that? Are we trying to procure his favor? Are we trying to earn something, some little part? Or is it none of that and just love him, trust him, Cast your cares upon Him, for He cares for you. Lay your life at His feet and say, I'd, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to Thy cross I cling. Naked, I come to the flood. Clothe me, Savior. Clothe me, or I die. I have nothing. And anything I do henceforth is because of You. Your largesse, Your beauty, your holiness. So what is it? Is it one or the other? Well, let me say this. I think it's both. Would you agree with me that it's probably a mixture of both? Because in this life, in our human existence, it's going to be hard to separate. There's always going to be something pushing on us all the time. That's probably not the right thing. You know, I, I, I know it's grace alone, but man, I missed my devotionals today. I wonder if he's upset. You know, your God in heaven got upset. He was mad. He had a cup full of his boiling 
hot wrath, ready to dump it out on this world and burn up everything that is and was and ever would be. And we have the temerity to stand before him and say, oh, he might be mad at me. He had a cup of wrath and he was mad. And Jesus came to him and said, Father, I will drink that cup. I'll drink that for them. And the father loved that. He was great. He was good with that. In fact, he said to Jesus, it was not that Jesus appeased him somehow. He said, will you go and do this for me, for them? I don't know what's wrong with us. But every time those things percolate in your mind, you've got to bring the gospel to bear and say, no, I will not serve you out of, out of terror and feel like you're going to get me. I will not do it. Right here, right now, in this one second, I'm going to say no to that and yes to the man on the cross who died for me. This is what James is getting at. He asserts with all of his might that you must make the character of God the bedrock of what you believe. And if you do, your life will will reflect that in so many ways. If you believe that God is behind the tests and the trials, remember we, I define tests and trials, the difference between them. Uh, there's one kind of test, same word in Greek, one kind of test that is to show how, how good you are. And there's another kind of test that Satan brings that is to trip you up. And James uses the same word on purpose and he says God will do this with that test whereas the devil wants to do this with that test. And if you blame God for that test, you are off the foundation of the character of God. You're going to get lost. You're going to be destroyed like a ship that's being whipped around. And he pleads with people to ground. If you lack wisdom, listen to what he says, and I'll finish here. If, he lacks, if you lack wisdom, we already talked about this, ask God, here's God, Here's the character of your God, he's telling them. He gives. He gives generously. He gives to all. He gives without reproach. Don't be deceived. He said that before he ever said anything in chapter 2. Every good, listen, here's more. Every good, every perfect gift from above. The Father of lights, not darkness. not out there to trip you up in the dark. There's no variation with you. You can count on him every moment to love you and care for you and be with you on your worst day. The day that you sin, the most grievous sin in the world, he does not hold his nose and back away. He draws in close. How do we know this? Because the Apostle Paul already said on your worst day, (laughs) while you were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. He loves his people. He delights in his people. He's not going to throw you under the bus. And James is pleading with people. There's no variation, there's no shadow of turn. Of his own will, he brought us forth. We are his first fruits, his treasure, the best he has. Now, I, I'm not the best he has. I don't know why he calls me that, but he does. And it's because of that I get down on my knees and I worship this great God. That's the motive. And this is what James is driving at. Look at Jesus. Look how he loved you. Look why he loved you. Not so you wouldn't have to do good works, but so you could. 
so you could do good work, so you could get out there and give your life away if necessary, and it would be okay. That in eternity, your treasures are in heaven where he is. Will you trust him? I pray that you will. Let's, let's pray. Father, we, we know that it's rough living in this world with all of the competing voices and things around us. We must give ear to your voice at least some small part of each day and hear what you have to say to us, O oh Lord. And I beg you, Father, for the sake of your great name, even during these times of chaos in our streets and chaos in our government and chaos in our world and this pandemic and all of the economical chaos, that even in the midst of this, that you will raise up people who absolutely trust you, no matter what it costs. I pray that our little band of of brothers and sisters here at Christ the King will embrace this with all our hearts and that we'll be a, a, a light to others, calling people out of their despair, out of their fear and terror and, and confusion. This is a time of great confusion, Lord. We don't know what's going on. We don't know what's going next. But we do want to trust you, and so please, please help us. I pray this in the name of your Son, our Savior Jesus. Amen.